Hello and welcome to our continuing 2017 educational webinar series focusing on OSHA topics. I am Dr. Jill Brooks, Senior Director of Education for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, a hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, skilled nursing facility, or long-term care facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. Today, we are so pleased to have Steve Wilder, President and COO of Sorensen Wilder & Associates, back with us today presenting on recognizing and diffusing aggressive behavior. In January, Steve presented the active shooter in the healthcare facility, planning for responding to and recovering from the unthinkable. For those of you who did not attend this live, that is available to view on our YouTube channel. Sorensen Wilder & Associates is a safety and security consulting group comprised of dedicated professionals with extensive experience in healthcare, educational, governmental, manufacturing, retailing, and public safety sectors. Today, they have become the recognized industry leader in healthcare workplace violence prevention programs and healthcare active shooter preparedness programs in the United States. Steve Wilder has spent the last 32 years in healthcare safety, security, and risk management. He has provided consultation services to hundreds of clients, including hospitals, long-term care, home care agencies, clinics, physician practices, EMS services. In his corporate healthcare career, Steve served as hospital director of risk management, as corporate director of risk management for a long-term care corporation, and as corporate director of safety and security for healthcare system with 10 hospitals and 15 long-term care facilities. Steve has performed security vulnerability assessments and mock OSHA audits at over 200 healthcare facilities across the United States and has trained thousands of workers in workplace safety and security. An experienced trial expert, Steve has consulted for law firms and insurance companies on issues of healthcare safety, security, risk management, aggression management, and workplace violence. He also has written numerous articles for healthcare magazines and trade journals. He and his partner, Chris Sorensen, are co-authors of the book, The Essentials of Aggression Management in Healthcare, From Talkdown to Takedown. Steve also writes a monthly safety column for Long-Term Living Magazine. A copy of the slide deck is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel. We will address these questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your Paycom CEO certificate will be emailed to you from Paycom following the broadcast. There is no need to request it. All right, go ahead, Steve. Good morning, Dr. Brooks. How are you? Good. Can you hear me okay? I can. Awesome, because during the introduction, I don't know what happened, but my connection went dead and I had to dial back in and I just got back in as you were concluding the introduction. So I want to make sure you could hear me okay. Okay, and, uh, well, if any of the attendees uh, have issues with audio, please uh, put in a question there and we will we will address it. Thank well, you so much. Well, I appreciate much. it. We just ran new string on our tin cans this morning, so everything should be working fine now. Uh, and, and hello, everybody, and thanks for joining us today. Uh, as I've done with some of the previous webinars I've done for Dr. Brooks, uh, you know, the topics that I deal with aren't always the most pleasant topics. And number one rule, as many of you have heard me say, is you never start a presentation with an apology. But I am sorry that we have to talk about this and that we have to recognize violent behavior and aggressive behavior as part of our healthcare industry. It's not what any of us signed up for. Uh, it's not what caregivers go to work thinking they're going to have to deal with or anticipate dealing with. But sadly, it has become a very big part of the healthcare industry. In the past, we've had to deal with uh, an OSHA guideline out there called OSHA 3148, 
which is the guideline for the prevention of workplace violence for healthcare professionals and social workers. OSHA is now in the process because this uh, epidemic of violence against healthcare professionals is becoming so serious. OSHA is, and I'm sure many of you are aware of this, they are actually developing and will be codifying a standard on workplace violence in healthcare. They put it out for public comment last fall. That public comment period expired this past April, so I would not be surprised by the end of the year to see a new OSHA standard. Of course, if it is an OSHA standard, that means it is a federal law, and we will have to do what the law says. So the best thing we can be doing to start out is putting our programs in place now so that when this OSHA standard comes out, if we have a working program, we can already say that we've got a program in place, it's compliant, it works, we don't have to go back and change. That's what our intent is today. Now, please appreciate that the program that we're doing today is about a, well, we've got an hour. So we're seeing 60 minutes of what is typically about a three to three and a half hour verbal de-escalation training program. And what I've done is I've extrapolated the key points uh, that we would do if we were together uh, for the full morning session. Dr. Brooks very eloquently introduced me, so, you know, I, I don't have to add anything to that. So let's get right into the meat and potatoes. And, you know, we talk about, as the slide says, recognizing and avoiding potentially violent behavior. Our goal is always to talk the person down. As Dr. Brooks said when she introduced me, when we authored our book a few years ago, The Essentials of Aggression Management in Healthcare, we subtitled it from talk down to take down. Emphasis is always on the talk down. We will put, and I have to ask you, commit as much time as necessary to talking somebody down. And I hear from healthcare professionals all the time, I don't have time for that. Well, if you don't have time for a talk down and it becomes violent, it's going to take a lot more of your time to protect yourself and then think about all the ridiculous paperwork that goes with it afterwards. So number one rule, commit time to a talk down. But when we're dealing with folks, and you know, we've worked with companies that have had so many different types of, of violent events, when we're talking to these people and we hear them make comments, and I hear it all the time, gosh, Steve, I don't know what happened. One minute he was fine, the next minute he was just going off on me. What that's typically telling me is, no, that, that's really not what happened. You just haven't been trained to recognize that this was coming. With exception, and this is, we're talking about human behavior here, so nothing is ever hard and fast. With exception, though, most people don't go from calm to physically violent in one step. It's not like that fast sports car that goes from zero to 60 in two seconds. People go through a number of behavioral changes that lead up to physical violence. We call this the aggression continuum. When I hear people tell me that, you know, he went from calm to to violent. More often than not, that just, as I said, it means the person had not been trained, therefore didn't recognize the danger until the individual was becoming physically violent with them, or as we say in the class, until he was growing lumps on their head. Our goal here is we want to be able to recognize these behavioral changes, not only to be able to recognize them, but to know how to de-escalate them. Now, when we're talking about the aggression continuum, we always use the six-foot step ladder. It's a great visual aid. We all see six-foot step ladders around the community. When we work on hospitals, you know, maintenance departments in hospitals, are there's practically one in every floor. Uh, we've got them at home. We see them in our homes, in our garages, et cetera. It's a great visual aid because in our aggression continuum, there are six steps, six behavioral changes between calm and physically violent. So each rung on our six-foot ladder 
represents a change in behavior between calm and physically violent. If I start out, and I'm down here on this bottom rung, I hope you can see my cursor. If I'm down here on this bottom rung, I'm at a state of calm. I can stand here all day and I'm not in any danger. I'm right next to the floor. If I slip, I don't have far to fall. I've got these nice side rails on the ladder I can hold on to. I've got good balance. I'm really not in harm's way at all. But when I start getting up here to this fifth rung, this fourth rung, this fifth rung, you know, now all of a sudden my balance is compromised. You know, safety is a little bit more precarious right now. I don't have these nice side rails to hold on to anymore because my upper body's up here, so my balance is really becoming an issue. And then all of a sudden I get up to that top step. Now think about that top step. It's got that big sticker up there that says what? Hey, dummy, don't stand up here. This is where you're going to fall and get hurt. Gang, this is where the danger is at. This is where physical violence is at. So as I said, we don't go from calm down here on the bottom rung to physical violence up here on the top rung without these other steps in between. So our goal here is we've got to recognize these steps, not only how to recognize the behavioral changes, but how to bring the person back down. And this is always our goal, get them back down to a state of calm. Get them back down to that bottom rung on the ladder. You know, when we start talking about that bottom rung, and you've heard me say it already a couple times, we call that rung calm. Their behavior is calm. And I'd like to go through this and just kind of think about this as it relates into our day-to-day -day environment. Now, we've got residents to think about. I know I've got some, some of my friends on today that are from the hospital setting. We've got patients to think about. Uh, but we've also got our relationships with families of our residents or our patients. We've got the relationship between coworkers to think about. This applies across all facets. When a person is calm, think about in your normal day-to-day -day activity. They present to us in a calm manner. Right? We see these people. Great news is this is where 99% of the people that we interact with spend all of their time. They're not agitated. Their presence is no threat to us. We say they're just another person functioning in our society. You know, think about the last time you walked through the aisles at the grocery store or at a shopping mall or wherever you might have been in, in the you know, kids' school events, whatever. You see other people, you make eye contact, you greet each other cordially. You're in a state of calm, they're in a state of calm. As I said, this is where we all work together. All of us are just folks functioning in society. Back into the clinical setting, though. I come into your office. I've got a concern with the way my mom is being cared for. And I want to visit with you about it. Think about how you're going to respond to me. Now, I come into your office, I sit down in a chair at your desk, I'm calm. As we're talking, I know you're going to respect my dignity. I've worked with many of you. I've seen it firsthand. I know you're going to respect my dignity. You're going to listen to my concerns. You're going to be compassionate and caring. You're going to focus on my needs. You're going to focus on helping me deal with the family issues that I'm bringing to your attention. Our interactions are going to be cordial, respectful, professional, and we're going to build a rapport between us so we can resolve whatever issues I might be coming to you with, whether I've got concerns or compliments. This is how most of us interact with our people, whether it's residents, patients, families, coworkers, employees. Most all of us, we're calm and our interactions are positive. Every now and then, though, that person might go up to the second rung of the ladder. We call that rung on our ladder verbally agitated. The good news about being verbally agitated, gang, every one of us have been there. Every one of us have slammed the door a little bit harder than we needed to. 
or said the words that we probably shouldn't say in mixed company. You know, when we talk about being verbally agitated, think about when you've had bad days. You're upset about something. You verbalize that anger. And that's all we're really doing is we're expressing our displeasure with something verbally. We don't direct the anger. I'm mad about something. I'm not mad at you. And this is one of the first things in our classes that we teach. Watch for directed versus non-directed anger. You know, so oftentimes, we'll, and we say it all the time, we handle it so poorly that we push the person up the ladder. And this is a very classic spot where it happens. This person comes into me, and they're venting their frustration about something. They're not mad at me. They're upset about something. They're mad about something. But their anger is not directed at me. If I handle it properly, we're going to be able to, to resolve it okay. Start watching for directed versus non-directed anger. Non-directed anger, they're no threat to you unless you handle it poorly. But when their anger is not directed, as I said, they're no threat to you, how do we respond to it? Well, I call it the magic art of shut up. And those of you that know me know I typically speak very candidly. The magic art of shut up. We just need to sit and listen. We don't need to be saying anything other than to acknowledge what they're telling us. You know, I equate this all the time with a bottle of champagne. If I put a bottle of champagne on my desk, it can sit there all day and it's going to be nothing but a bottle of champagne. But if I pick it up and I give it a real good shaking up and then I set it back down, all that pressure inside that champagne bottle starts to build up. And eventually, that pressure inside that bottle builds up to the point that what does it do? It blows the cork off. It pops its top. It spews the pressure out. Once the pressure is out, all I've got is a champagne bottle again. I don't have to do anything to get the pressure out of the bottle. I don't have to try to reach in and scoop it out or pour it out. or anything. Just let it vent, and it's going to vent itself. People are no different here. What we want to do with this person, when that person comes in, they're venting their frustration, they're venting their anger, we want to practice the magic art of shut up. Let them vent, because the more they vent, the more they're letting the pressure out of their champagne bottle. And again, the fact that their anger is not directed at you, you're not in harm's way. We want to respect this person. Guys, I said we've all been there. This is a good person having a bad day. And if any of you haven't been there, you might as well hang up now because this, this presentation is not going to be of any value. We've all had bad days. We've all had days that we didn't think were going to go the way they did, but at the end they did. All right? When this episode is over, when this person has vented their frustration, when they've let the pressure out of their champagne bottle, we don't want them to feel bad about themselves. We want them to leave feeling good about themselves. We want them to leave feeling good about the way that we handled it. We want them to leave with their self-esteem intact. So, you know, one of the things we need to realize, let them vent their champagne bottle. The anger is not directed at you. You just sit, listen to them, acknowledge their feelings, and let them vent the pressure out of their own champagne bottle. This is not a person that needs you telling them what to do. And if we're not saying anything, if we're listening, we're not saying anything, we don't have to worry about making this mistake. If you want to push this person up the ladder, start giving them orders. Please, do not give this person orders. I think I'm making my point on that. Now, every now and then, our person may go up to the third rung on the ladder. We call this rung verbally hostile. And my friends, if there is a difficult way, if there's a difficult level in the continuum to recognize, 
it would be verbally hostile. Because when we look at a person's behavior and we're talking about verbally hostile, their behaviors are almost the identical of what we just talked about in verbally agitated. Their anger is not directed at you. They're no threat to you. They're continuing to vent the pressure out of their champagne bottle. But what we start to see now is, you know, and, and one of the things that I always use as a gauge, if I'm starting to silently ask myself, how much pressure is in this champagne bottle? If it seems like they're just going on and on and on and on over something that to me seems pretty meaningless or insignificant, maybe would be a better term. Then I start to think maybe they've made the transition between verbally uh, agitated and verbally hostile. They may also make comments like this blankety bank place or you blankety people, or they may say this always happens or you never, or they'll try to bring past events into the present. Those are all ways that they wave the red flag that tell us that they've made that adjustment from um, verbally agitated to verbally hostile. The other thing they may do, you may start to see more emotion. This is one of the things I always watch. I'm sure all of us, and perhaps you've been in that situation yourself, you're so upset about something that as you're talking about it, you start getting teary-eyed. You start feeling yourself on the verge of crying. Right? You're not broken-hearted crying. You're angry crying. When the person is starting to add, and, and I almost say the, the uh, uh, algebraic equation for this could be verbally agitated plus emotional uh, uh, equals verbally hostile. When they start showing emotion, that's a red flag that they've already made the transition from verbally agitated to verbally hostile. Now, again, how do we handle this person? How do I help calm this person down? One of the first things I want to be sensitive to is my body posture. I want to make sure whether I'm standing or sitting that my body posture is not one that is going to be intimidating to them. I don't want to be standing in a stance that suggests that subconsciously I'm ready for a fight. If I'm sitting at my desk, I don't want to be leaning back and taking a body posture that suggests I don't care. I want to make sure this person understands I do care. I do want to resolve this with them in a way that's good for both of us. You know, when, when we're doing the class live, we always talk about, and certainly clinicians on the conference today, um, we talk about from a clinical point what we call the anatomical position. My hands, or excuse me, my feet are shoulder width apart, knees are slightly bent for comfort, my hands down at my side with my palms facing forward. Well, very simple. What I want you to be able to do is transfer from that anatomical position Feet stay the same, knees are slightly bent for comfort. I just want your hands up in front of your chest. You don't have to have them clinched. I certainly don't want them in a fist. I want your hands open. I don't care if your palm is facing you or facing them. We call this the interview stance. It's a very neutral stance. It's very non-threatening. But it also, your hands are up in front of you. You're sending them a nonverbal signal that says, I have nothing in my hands that's going to hurt you. I'm not here to fight you but you've also got your hands in front of you, they're at the third level already out of six. They can start getting to that top level pretty quickly. So you've always got your hands in front of you in case you had to protect yourself in a hurry. So we want to stay in that interview stance. We want to stay in that non-threatening posture. This is a person that we also want to respect their personal zone. 
you know, if I'm doing this class live for you, at this point what I would do is I would have somebody in one of the front rows, and I would go over and I would literally stand right next to them. They'd be okay with that for about 30 seconds. And then they start to get a little bit fidgety because I'm invading their personal zone. All of us have a personal zone that we don't like people to penetrate for more than short periods at a time. Think about the last time you were introduced to somebody face-to-face. -face. Typically, we're in close proximity to one another. I'm introduced to Dr. Brooks. We shake hands, say our hellos. Then typically, one or both of us will take a step back, and we will establish our personal zones without ever saying a word about it. Everybody has that zone that they don't like people coming into for long periods of time. Even our patients and our residents who might be in a bed have that zone. And I always use the example, years ago I was involved in a, in a motorcycle crash and I was in the hospital for four or five days. I had the most fantastic nursing care I could ever ask for. But there was one particular nurse on the nighttime shift who would come into my room every night at 2 o'clock in the morning to wake me up to see if I was sleeping okay. Never did figure that one out. But the whole time she was talking to me, she was standing so that I'm lying in the bed, my head's on my pillow, and she's standing right over me looking down at me. She's psychologically trapping me by being in my space so much. She could just as easily have talked to me standing at my hips, maybe a foot away from the bed. If she had to come in close to do vital signs or anything like that, she could, but then reestablish and allow me my personal zone. Even though she's standing up and I'm lying down, it still gives me a greater comfort. And these residents and these patients that we're dealing with can very easily be in uh, a state of being verbally hostile where they're threatened by their personal zone being, being violated, even though they're lying down. Again, continue to allow this person to vent the anger out of that champagne bottle. Right, they're still, their anger is non-directed. There's still no threat to you. Now, this person, a minute ago when we talked about verbally agitated, I said, do not give orders. This is a person we may need to coach a little bit, though. As they're going up the ladder, we may need to coach their behavior a little bit. What we want to try to do whenever it's possible, we want to try to help them make good decisions but make sure that it's their decision and not ours. They don't need us making their decision. They need us to help them make the right decision. We don't do that by telling them what to do. We do that by coaching them and leading them to the right decision. Now, years ago, when, when my business partner, Chris Sorensen, and I put this program together, we worked with a behaviorist here in the Chicago area, a uh, very good friend. Hold on one second, please. I'm sorry, I could tell I was going to cough. I didn't want to do it in years. Uh, we worked with a very good friend uh, by the name of Dr. John Moran here in the Chicago area. Dr. Moran spent many years of his practice in what was then the Illinois Department of Mental Health, and much of his practice was devoted to studying aggressive behavior in healthcare patients. And Dr. Uh, Moran is actually the one that developed much of this continuum that we're using today as we go through this. Uh, and, and we use much of his product with his permission, and he's uh, literally legally signed it over to us. But when we were working with Dr. Moran and we were putting this together and we talk about how do you get somebody to do what we want them to do, but making sure it's their idea, we started thinking about out in our society, what facet is really good at this? Where can we go to learn who's really good at getting people to do what they don't want to do? And 
obviously the first answer to that was salespeople. But then we focused it a little bit more, and we started thinking, what kind of salespeople? And I'm sure many of you are chuckling right now because you're anticipating the answer. We looked at car salesmen, automobile salespeople. And we're very blessed in, in our hometown. We have a local uh, 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 Cadillac Toyota dealership, and the owner of it happens to be a very close friend of ours. When um, Mr. Sorensen and I were, were both working in the hospital, this gentleman was on our board of directors. So we've been friends with him for a lot of years. So we went and we sat down with him, and we just asked him straight up, Bruce, how do you do it? When somebody comes walking in the front door of your dealership, you know, typically they're in a defensive mode right off the bat because they're looking at the product, but they don't want to have to deal with the salespeople. Friends, think about last time you went car shopping. You know, you go walking in knowing that the minute you cross the threshold, the vultures are going to be on you. And he said, it's really not difficult. He says, as we're dealing with the customer, he says, we know that one of the things we have to do is get them to agree with us as much as possible. And he said, so we will oftentimes ask them questions that we know they have to agree with us. And he said, to do that, we use questions that will end with an apostrophe T words. Couldn't, wouldn't, can't, shouldn't, won't, those types of things. The more that they ask you the questions and you agree with them, the more likely at the end of the time you are likely to sign the contract buying that car. Think about the last time you went car shopping. You walk in the dealership, sales rep comes up, introduces him or herself, you shake hands, you step back, you reestablish your personal zone. Now you're looking at this car. The sales rep asks you a question, already knowing the answer to this question. So they'll look at you and they'll say something about the car like, it's a real beauty, isn't it? Well, they already know the answer. You've taken time out of your busy day to stop and come in and look at it, they know there's an attraction of some kind. You didn't stop and say, no, it's so ugly, I had to look at it. They know you like the car, you wouldn't be there. So they're gonna use that information to their advantage and get you to agree with them. So they say, it's a beauty, isn't it? And you say, what, sure, it really is. Next question, it's an easy one to answer. Probably like to take it for a test drive, wouldn't you? So your response is, well, yeah, but I know I can't afford it. And they're giving you the, ah, let me worry about that. That's my job. So they slap some plates on it. We go out for a drive, and they're telling you how great you look uh, driving that car and, and how great this car looks on you and blah, blah, blah. They know the answer to this next question, and it's a brand-new car. It's got three miles on it. They ask you, it drives great, doesn't it? Again, there's our N apostrophe T word and they know that you're going to agree. What are you going to say? It's got three miles on it. Know it pulls to the left. They know that you're going to answer them in the affirmative. They know they're going to agree with you. So they keep driving and telling you all the good things you want to hear about how great you look in it and how great of a car it is. And so then they come with the next question. I bet if I can get this car into your payment range, you'd probably be interested in this, wouldn't you? You see how we're doing that, friends? They're building you up to do what they want you to do by getting you to agree with them. So back to the person that we're dealing with. I don't need to tell them what to do, but I can ask them what to do. I can lead them to what to do by asking them the menopause T words. Let's take a hypothetical situation. I'm gonna pick on my friend, Dr. Brooks, for a minute. She's my boss. I'm not pleased with the way something is going at work, and I see her in the hallway. So I stop her and I start unloading on her because I'm so upset. Well, obviously, I think we would all agree the hallway is probably not the right place to do it. 
So she needs to get me into her office or into an office or conference room or whatever. She can tell me, Steve, go in there. She's got that authority. She's my boss. But I'm going to go in there reluctantly and with a bad attitude. But if she said something to me instead, like, Steve, I understand you're upset about this. We can go in my office and talk about this, can't we? What am I going to say? No, I want to stay out here in the hallway and make a fool of myself. No, of course I'm going to say, sure. She led me to water and gave me the opportunity, and I decide to drink. That's exactly what we're doing here, friends. It's a new way of talking for many of you. I realize that. But you need to practice. So here's your homework assignment. At the end of the day, I want you to go home tonight. I want you to say, honey, I had a really hard day at work today. The last thing I feel like doing is messing with dinner and dirty dishes and everything else. We can go out for dinner tonight, can't we? Practice it. Just don't tell them where you learned it. You know, and, I, and obviously I say that a little bit jokingly, but I want you to practice this. Now, please understand, it does not work 100% of the time. As I said earlier, this is human behavior. Nothing works 100% of the time. But with practice and learning how to use this, and I'll tell you, and I don't know if we talked about it in the introduction, uh, if Joe pointed it out or not, but I also spent 35 years in the fire service. I was a paramedic here in Illinois for 27 years. I've dealt with a lot of aggressive patients in my career. I've used these techniques a lot. They work for me more often than they don't, but there are times when they're not going to work. Again, we want to continue to build this relationship with this person. We want to make collaborative statements. What can we do to resolve this? How can we resolve this in a way that's good for both of us? Help me to see the way. And again, these are the patients that keep bringing things in from the past. We can't undo history, friends. All we can do is apologize for what's happened in the past but we want to keep this specific to the here and now. This is the only part we can affect. I can't change the past. So keep bringing them back. When they try to say, every time I come in here, it's this way, or every time mom is admitted, uh, we have to go through this. I'm sorry that it's happened in the past. Let's fix it here and now. Now, if the person continues to escalate, the great news is most people don't go beyond verbally hostile. But if they do, the world's starting to change on us, and it's starting to get ugly. Because now they're going from verbally threatening, to, or excuse me, verbally hostile to verbally threatening. The commonality we've had between calm, verbally agitated, and verbally hostile is that that person, their anger was non-directed. And I keep beating that up because this is such a critical part of this. Their anger was non-directed. They were upset, but they were not upset with you. They're upset about something. When they become verbally threatening, though, that changes. They begin to focus their anger. Dr. Brooks, you listen to me. Can you tell who I'm angry at now? Can you tell who my anger is directed at? Number one, I called Dr. Brooks by name. Number two, I'm pointing my finger at her. And as I'm pointing my finger at her, I'm saying, you. You can tell if I'm going to become physically aggressive where my physical aggression is going to be directed. You see now the difference between non-directed anger and directed anger. Right? Sometimes we handle it so poorly, we cause non-directed anger to become directed anger. Right? But when they start to become verbally threatening, they begin to focus their anger. Now, also please understand, when they direct their anger, it doesn't have to be at anybody present. I've seen many cases where they'll look at a nurse and they'll say, you know, Diane, I have no trouble with you whatsoever, but so help me if Dr. Brooks walks in right now, I'll break both her knees. They're so upset with that third person. 
So Diane, our nurse, is in no harm's way. She just needs to make sure Dr. Brooks doesn't come walking in because if she does, we might have a problem. So the anger can be directed at a third person. If the anger is directed at a third person and you're not that third person, you're okay. You can continue to work with this person to de-escalate them. But let's say for the sake of argument and the sake of time that right now their anger is directed at you. Right? They start to focus their anger on a specific person. They may make demands for action and they may make threats of consequences if those demands aren't met. You know, I always think about that years ago uh, as a classic example. Uh, years ago, I had an opportunity, and, and I was actually working a shift at the fire department this, night, this particular night. We were sent out on a Friday night for a 16-year-old possible drug overdose, and this is at home. And we walk in, and the police are there, very nice upscale part of our community, very beautiful homes. We walk in and we're directed downstairs by family members. And we get downstairs and this young 16-year-old kid standing down there. And I mean, this kid is stoned on something. I'm just being very blunt. Felt terrible for mom and dad. Uh, you know, they're both sitting there, big crocodile tears. Obviously, this is not normal behavior for this kid or for this family. So they're in a situation that they just, you know, very unfamiliar territory to them. So we're talking to the kid. Now, we don't know what this kid has taken, so he's going to the hospital. There's no doubt about that. The choices are, is he going to go cooperatively or is he going to go by force? 16 years old, obviously stoned. Obviously, he has ingested something. We don't know if it's something that's just going to give him a buzz or if it's something that's going to kill him. So he's going to the hospital. So I'm trying to talk to this kid, and guys, as I said, nothing's guaranteed. I'm doing everything that I've talked about up to this point, and apostrophe T words, trying to get him to agree with me. And, and because of his mental status, because of whatever he had taken, nothing is working. Finally, he looks at me and he points a finger at me. And, and I apologize in advance. I'm going to quote him. It's not real bad. But his exact words pointing his finger at me is, you listen to me. You get out of my house. No, excuse me. He says, you listen to me. You get your fat ass out of my house or I'm going to throw you out. <clears throat> Ergo, my apology for the language. Right. Do you see what he just did there? If you look at the screen again, he made a demand for action. You get out of my house. The threat of the consequence, if you don't do what I'm telling you to do, if you don't meet my demand for action, I'm going to throw you out. This is something we want to watch for. They will start demanding what they want from us, and they will tell us what they're going to do if we don't meet their demands. It's a red flag gang. When the person is at this level, we have to realize, first things first, picture our ladder. I'm at the fourth rung. Remember in the intro I said at the fourth rung, it's getting a little unsteady. My balance is a little bit compromised now. Things are getting a little bit dangerous now. We want to maintain eye contact. Now, I'm a very firm believer the eyes are the pathway to the mind. Their eyes will tell you what their mind is thinking. That being said, I don't want you to get into a stare-down contest with them. Stare-down contest, somebody has to win, somebody has to lose. And there's no such thing as winning and losing of this. This has to be a win-win. If it's not, everybody loses. You want to get in a stare-down contest? I always tell people, go home, do it with your dog. Drives them crazy, and it's a lot of fun because they love you anyway. Maintain eye contact with the person. Watch their eyes. Their eyes will tell you what their mind is thinking. If they're sitting at your desk and they keep looking at the door, they're telling you, I want out of here. They keep looking at their watch. They're telling you, I don't want to take any more time doing this. I want to get out of here. They start looking at your desk and things you have on, their de on your desk. 
They may be looking for something that could be used as a weapon of opportunity against you. So watch their eyes. Maintain that eye contact. We want you to avoid cornering the person. Cornering means to trap. We'll talk more about cornering in a minute. But for right now, realize we do not want to do anything that makes this person feel trapped. We want to give them options. Again, we can't make their decisions for them. We want to give them honest options. Back to my 16-year-old kid. Right? His option wasn't, do you want to go to the hospital or you just want to go upstairs and, and crash and go to bed? He was going to the hospital. His option is peacefully or by force. And I was trying to explain to this kid, if you walk out to the ambulance with the paramedics, you're nice to them, you're respectful to them, you don't give them any trouble, they drive you to the hospital. When you get to the hospital, you walk in, you're cooperative with the nursing staff, you're cooperative with the docs, you do everything they tell you. You might, I didn't promise him, I can't make a false promise, you might be home in your own bed yet tonight. But if we have to take you by force, we, with the police officers and the other people here, are going to have to take you down to the floor, put you on our stretcher, put you in what we call six-point restraints. You're going to be transported to the hospital. When we get to the hospital, we will wheel you into a quiet room, which is a mental health exam room, where you will be taken off our stretcher, and if the doctor feels it's necessary, you'll be put back into restraints, and you will be treated as an uncooperative mental health patient. And under Illinois law, you will spend the next three days in the adolescent mental health unit. You know, so we're trying to make this kid make the right choice. We're trying to help him. I shouldn't say make him. We're trying to help this kid make the right choice. We wanted this kid to say, all right, I'll go cooperatively. I'd like to sleep in my own bed tonight. Right, so we're giving him options. And this is the point I need to start anticipating violence. You'll notice on your screen this is in green. And the reason for that is for a number of years we worked with a hospital up in Wisconsin. And when, when they have a, a security emergency, they use the term code green. You've heard me talk on other presentations that are done for Dr. Brooks on how I feel about color codes. So I'll skip that other than those of you who haven't heard it. I hate them because they cause confusion and they're going to get somebody killed off my soapbox. Theirs is a code green. If they have a security emergency, they would page over the overhead code green and they would give the location. So we put this in green just because it was, when we train them, we remind them it is at this point that you want to call your code green. I leave it in green for all of my do because this is a good point to talk about it. If you have some type of an emergency response team, this is the point where you want to activate them. Now we'll talk about response teams in just a minute, but my point at this point in the presentation is, this is where I want to mobilize my response team. If I wait any later, it might be too late by the time they get there. Now, a moment ago, I mentioned cornering. And I said the corner is to trap the person. Think about, about the most docile animal. It's loving. It might be a family pet. And, and it's just the most loving and playful. But when you back that pet, you back that animal into a corner, and it becomes scared for its safety, its fight-flight syndrome kicks in and that animal will turn on you. And people are no different. When people are trapped, when people are made to feel like they're trapped, they will turn on you. So we need to understand there are some things that we do in healthcare mistakenly that cause that person to feel trapped. The first one, we use the acronym CAPE. The first one is contact cornering. Contact cornering means we inappropriately put our hands on somebody else. And when I say inappropriately, I don't mean in a sexual way or anything like that. 
we make physical contact. You know, the healthcare industry is a doggone touchy-feely. We put our hands on somebody that doesn't want our hands on them, and they may not respond cooperatively. You know, years ago, I worked in a Catholic hospital, fantastic place, I love them to death to this day. We had a 16-year-old girl who was brought into the ER after a motor vehicle crash, and sadly, she was dead on arrival. So the parents are called into the ER, and they're put in the family room uh, so that at some point in the, in the immediate future, the, the doc and the nursing staff and pastoral care could come out and tell them the news that you know, no parent ever wants to hear. So the doc came in and told them this terrible news, and of course they had the emotional response you would expect. One of our sisters, uh, one of the nuns from pastoral care, put her arm around this grieving father's shoulder, and he did not want to be touched. And his immediate response was to push sister away and said, get your blanking hands off of me. Now, he didn't push sister away to be violent. Sister, mistakenly, with nothing but the purest of heart, contact cornered this person. We have to stay hands off. We need to understand that not everybody wants to be touched. I talked earlier about the motorcycle crash I was in. And like I said, I had great nursing staff for five days I was in the hospital. But that same nurse I talked about that would come in at 2 o'clock in the morning and would stand over me, the whole time she's talking to me and checking on me, and like I said, fantastic nurse. I love this. You know, I can't say enough good about the treatment I got. But she had a very unique trait about her. While she's talking to me, she's standing over my head looking down at me, and she's got Emily on the bed, and she would put both of her hands on my forearm, almost making me feel like she's holding my arm down. And my response was always, I wanted to pull my arm away. Our response can be misconstrued or misunderstood by the caregiver who thinks that we're becoming aggressive. Well, no, I'm not becoming aggressive. I just don't want to be touched. So we have to understand contact cornering, hands off. We need to teach our people if we don't need to touch. Not everybody wants to be touched. The A in our acronym is angular cornering. And I'm not going to spend too much time on these, but have you ever been talking to somebody and the whole time you're talking to them, they're moving around, and you almost feel like you know, you're know you not even paying attention to what they're saying because your eyes are chasing them so much. Well, when a person's already worked up, and realize we're at the fourth rung of our ladder, when the person is already worked up, and now we're making them chase us with their eyes, all we're doing is building more frustration to them. We're pushing them up the ladder, gang. When you're talking to these people, when you're dealing with these folks, put yourself in park, make eye contact, talk to them, work with them. Don't force them to chase you around. P is psychological cornering. Psychological cornering, you know, when we make somebody feel psychologically trapped, again, back to my nurse, as I said, I'm laying in the bed, she's standing right over my head. I felt very intimidated by that. Or the opposite, we've got somebody sitting in a chair and we're standing over them talking to them. There's only one of two ways that they can neutralize the playing field here. And that's to either get up and get eye level with us or get us down to eye level with them. Either way, we misperceive that as an aggressive move, and now all of a sudden, the fight's on. You see how I say we make these mistakes that cause the person to go up the ladder? The golden rule I always use, people ask me all the time, well, do I want to be sitting or do I want to be standing? My rule of thumb on this one, gang, is if the person's anger is non-directed, in other words, they're calm, they're verbally uh, agitated, or they're verbally hostile, non-directed anger. If they are sitting, I'm okay with you sitting. 
if their anger is at the level of verbally threatening or beyond where we now have directed anger, I don't want you sitting anytime. The other rule, though, is anytime they are standing, I want you standing. You can invite them to sit down, but if they remain standing, I want you standing. Because remember, at the very beginning, I said they can go up the ladder so quickly. And if they suddenly go up that ladder quickly and you're sitting down, by the time they get to you and become physically violent with you, you may not have time to get out of the chair. So anytime they're standing, I prefer you to be standing. The last one is what we call exit cornering. Exit cornering works two ways. In the clinical setting, we see exit cornering more in hospitals than we do in long-term care. In the hospital setting, we see exit cornering mistakenly made by the clinician, the caregiver, and more often than not, we see this either in the ER or in the behavioral health units, where the, the caregiver is talking to the patient or to a family member and physically stands in the door opening. The nonverbal message there being, you can't leave this room. To the patient or to the person in the room, the message is, if I want out, I've either got to go through you or over you. And they will. Even if leaving is not an option, don't stand in the doorway to talk to people, especially when they're already verbally threatening. If, you know, just the perception of the open door can calm things down. If you're going to talk to that person, you're keeping safe distance, I'm fine with that, stand off to the side of the door. You're still closest to the door. If it gets ugly, you can get out in a hurry. But don't stand in the open door and give them the perception that it's a blocked door. You might get knocked down. But the other mistake we make also, and I see this in all facets of healthcare, is we allow that upset person to get themselves positioned so that they are between us and the door. So imagine that for just a minute. Now I'm the caregiver, I'm in danger and I want out, but I can't get to the door because I'm exit cornered in that room. I'm exit trapped in that room. And I see this in the clinical settings, but folks, I see this in the office settings a lot too. I'm going to describe your office to you for a lot of you. You're sitting there. Behind you, you have your credenza up against the wall. Then you have your executive chair. Then you have your desk. Then you have a couple of chairs sitting across from your desk. And over there in the corner, you have a conference table. And over by the conference table is the door to your office. Now, imagine that you're sitting at your desk. I'm sitting across from you. And you're doing a disciplinary action on me. You're terminating me. You're telling me that because of the fact that we can't pay the bill, that I've got to take mom somewhere else. All these things that I don't want to hear or I don't want to see happen, and now I'm directing my anger at you. All of a sudden you realize that because of the layout of your office, you're trapped. I'm between you and the door. You're not going anywhere. You're a victim now. You see what I mean? I want you to go back and I want you to inventory your offices, and I want you to think about how can I rearrange my office so that I'm always the closest person to the door. Because that's really what I want. If you've got to deal with adversity, I want you closest to the door so if it gets ugly, you're the first one out. If our person continues up the ladder, now we've transitioned from the verbal aspect of our continuum over to the physical aspect. They will become physically threatening to you. You see why I wanted that response team called when they were verbally threatening? Because when it gets to this point, look at your screen, my friends. Look at how close you are to that top step where it's going to be ugly. I want that team there to protect me, to help me. When they become physically threatening, they may go into a stance that projects violence. They'll go into a fighting stance. 
you'll be able to tell just the way their body mannerisms are that they're getting ready to poke. They may start, again, I, I said, watch their eyes. They're looking at your desk now. I want you to go back, or as you're sitting here doing this conference, look at your desk. Look at all the weapons of opportunity of things that are on your desk that could be used as a weapon against you. I'm sitting here at my desk. Let's see, I've got a letter opener. I've got a really nice uh, pen holder that my daughter got me for Christmas a couple years ago, full of pens that make really nice stabbing weapons. I've got a stapler. I've got a scotch tape dispenser. I've got a couple of knickknacks. I've got a ceramic coffee cup. I've got my telephone, which itself can be used as an impact weapon, or the cord can be used as a choke tool. All these things that are on our desk that we've got that we treat as office environment that we don't realize can be used as weapons against us. Think about out on the floors. I see our nursing staff. I love them, but I see them all the time walking with their stethoscopes around their neck. If I'm upset, whether I approach you from the front or the back, I can use that stethoscope, choke your eyes out of your head, and have you unconscious in less than 10 seconds. Right? We've got to stop bringing weapons to the party. If I'm going to be dealing with somebody that I know is upset, I'm going to weapon-proof my desk before I ever deal with that person, before they're ever let into my office. When I'm working out on the floors as a caregiver, I'm not going to have anything around my neck. That stethoscope works as well being carried in your pocket as it does worn around your neck. Don't bring weapons to the party. This person's not sure about how prepared you are, so they may make a bluff move against you to see how prepared you are to respond. Now, when they become physically threatening, our response becomes paramount because we have to recognize this is the critical point. We want to be in a defensive posture. Now, I remember a few minutes ago, I talked about the interview stance. My feet are shoulder-width apart. My hands are up in front of my chest in an open, open hand. A defensive stance, if I'm standing with my feet on a straight line, shoulder-width apart, for a defensive stance, all I want to do is I want to take my strong side foot. Now, I, as your presenter, I'm right-handed. So I would take my right foot, I would drop it back about a half a step, and I would point it at a 45-degree angle away from that imaginary line that I was just standing on. So imagine just take a half step back and point your foot. If I'm standing in front of you and I've got my feet on a straight line and you come up to me and you push me, I don't care how big or how small, what kind of size difference there is between us, I'm probably going to fall over. But when I drop that strong side foot back, and again, my hands are open. I don't have my fist made. I'm not telling that person, yeah, let's fight. I have my hands open. My palms are showing. He can see I have no weapons, but I'm still ready to protect myself. But when I put my strong side foot back and just point it out, again, a half a step, pointing the foot to a 45-degree angle, my goal is I want to become a fire hydrant. How hard is it to push over a fire hydrant? I don't want that person to be able to push me over. If he get, pushes me over gets, and I fall to the floor, Unless I'm trained in floor fighting, I'm a victim. I, I don't want to give them that opportunity. So I'm going to stay in that defensive posture, not a fighting posture, just a defensive stance. I also want to look for strong side, weak side indicators. Right? Everybody has a strong side. Everybody has a weak side. I always want to try to position myself on that person's weak side to give myself the upper advantage. And I want to be prepared at this point for a physical attack. Because if it continues any higher up the rungs, person stands on that stop tip, top step, excuse me, where the danger is at, and they become physically violent. Now, when they become physically violent, they physically attack you in some form. Your response to this one is you change to a self-defense and survival mode. Now, guys, I'm not a lawyer. I'm a risk manager. 
but I can tell you the laws in all 50 states are just about the same. You have the right to use the level of force necessary to protect yourself from injury or death up to and including the use of lethal force. So in other words, you can use the level of force necessary to protect yourself. But I will also tell you as a risk manager that we have something out there that's used against us in healthcare called a reasonable person standard. Our actions have to be that of a reasonable person. Chris comes in here and it's a bad confrontation and it becomes physically violent. He makes an aggressive move towards me. I take him down to the floor, I pin him to the floor, and I keep him pinned down until his anger and rage passes and he calms down. I've done a great job. But I'm also a human being. He attacked me. I took him down, but now I am so angry with him attacking me that I reach up on my desk and I grab the stapler and I start gouging him with it, beating him with it. Is that the actions of a reasonable person? No, it's not. So am I using the level of force necessary? No, I've probably exceeded it. We have to make sure that even in our use of force to protect ourselves, that we don't go beyond the level of force necessary and that our actions are always that of a reasonable person. And in our industry, that will be defined as somebody in a same or similar situation or role. So if you're a nurse, you've got to behave as a nurse typically would be expected to. Administrator, you've got to respond as a healthcare administrator would. Your role has to be that of a like, reasonable person. Now, I talked earlier about your response team, and I'm cognizant of our time also. I talked earlier about our response team. I absolutely, if it's avoidable, I don't want you in a one-on-one -on -one role with somebody who's escalating up the ladder. But at the same time, I don't want a situation where that person feels like, my God, you've got the cavalry here, and all I'm trying to do is resolve an issue with mom. Our model for the clients that we train when we train in aggression management is we use a three-person talk-down team and no more than five to six trained people on a physical restraint team or takedown team. Right? You know, so many times I hear, uh, or I'll look at plans, when a code green is called, all male employees on duty will come running. And, you know, they call it code green, and it's like, here comes the football team, or here comes the cavalry, and it becomes nothing more than a, a, a testosterone overdose coming down the hallway. And when they get there, if they can't deal with the patient, they'll beat the bejeebies out of each other just to dump that testosterone. We don't need that. That's not a professional healthcare environment. Three people for a talk-down team is all I need, and five, no more than six for my takedown team. Takedown or restraint team, I want one person on each extremity, one person on the head, and maybe somebody be in my circulating. When we're doing a talk down, we train to use what we call a triangle approach. That's not an NBA basketball offense, by the way. The triangle approach is just what the name says. You can see my buddy here with the red face. He's upset about something. Triangle approach, I've got my charge person in front. Now, let's understand, when I say charge person, I could care less about titles, years of service, level of authority, where you're at on the food chain, the charge person is always the person who is closest to the aggressor. Because if my buddy right here becomes physically violent, he's going to become physically violent with this person because they're closest to him. I also have, though, my two backup people. Do you see where I get the name the triangle approach? One of the things that we need to understand 
in this triangle approach, the only person who talks to the aggressor is the person who is in charge. These other two folks are there for silent backup. If this person does become physically aggressive, we got two other people there to help control the situation. But imagine if all three, this guy's already upset, he's red-faced. Imagine all three of these people talking to him at the same time. It's gonna sound like nothing but a bunch of buzzing bees. But what do we do though, when our guy here in charge is not doing a good job? Well, first of all, we need to put egos on the shelf. This isn't about how good or how bad anybody does. Sometimes this guy just doesn't like who he's talking to. You may be the source of the problem. He may not like the shirt you're wearing. Who knows? If it's not working, then what we need to do is one of these two people need to step up, and this guy's ego needs to be in check. He needs to be willing to step back. So what we end up with is a situation that looks something like this. Uh, I'm talking to him. My backup person uh, gives me the coded message uh, that says, hey, Steve, let's trade places. So I step back. That backup person steps up. Now I'm the silent backup, and this, oops, I'm sorry. I'm the silent backup, and this person is in charge. Do you see how that worked? My ego doesn't matter. A safe outcome for everybody on my team is what matters. Now, if we've called our code green or whatever your response team is, I've got these three people dealing with this. I don't need everybody else coming running in. We can train to stage them out in the hallway if we have to. If it becomes necessary and it becomes physically aggressive, I've got three people in here to protect us to start. And the minute they hear the commotion, they can step in. So we've still got two or three more people out here for backup. I don't want them seen by my aggressor, though. I don't want him thinking that we're anticipating a fight. We're not. We're here to make sure it doesn't get to that. And that's why we're doing all this on de-escalation. Gang, we've got about three minutes left. I want to make sure that we've got time to answer questions. Uh, so, Dr. Brooks, I will turn it back over to you. Uh, if we have any questions, if not, I'll entertain a few. Okay, uh, Steve, great presentation. And yes, of course, we do have a bunch of questions. So uh, what if uh, the individual vents to you over and over again, how do you keep listening when it's constant complaining? <laughs> well, first of all, I don't know if we're talking about a patient, a uh, resident, or a family or an employee. But at some point, first of all, if it's an employee, we can make it an HR issue. And uh, this just may not be a good fit for them. If it's a family member, uh, a lot of times, again, engaging them in what could we be doing different and helping them to understand why we're doing the things we're doing, or maybe we're open-minded to what they're suggesting. If it's good resolution to the issue, we can give that consideration as well. Sometimes they just want to be heard and they want to feel like they're taking, you know, I'm dealing with it right now. I've got a 95-year-old mother who's in the hospital right now, and uh, uh, we're a family of caregivers uh, from a bunch of different disciplines in healthcare, but uh, fortunately, they're making us an active part of her care plan, so it, it feels good. But, uh, uh, you know, without knowing the specifics on that, I can only generalize. Okay. What about uh, a worker who's angered but does not want to talk about an issue? Well, we might send that person home, or, again, it depends a lot on the issue. Uh, we might end up having to send that person home, or we might have them just sit for a little bit of time and cool off, and then we'll revisit the issue. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, as I always say, it's our bat and our ball. They're going to have to play by our rules if they're our employee. Now, I also know that right now I've got half the audience who's still on the line who are saying, yeah, you don't know how hard I work to get people to come in and work shifts or to fill vacancies. So I understand it's a double-edged sword on that one. 
Uh, what if there's a physician, uh, he's seeing a patient, he's getting agitated, he calls his office manager to say the same things that he's saying to the patient, and what would be the next step there? Well, I like that approach, first of all. Sometimes it, it may not necessarily, and, and Doc, I certainly say this with no disrespect to you as a physician or to any of your peers, but sometimes physicians don't always communicate clearly with the patients where maybe somebody else, a nurse or somebody from the office staff, office manager, whatever, will be received better. So I, I'm certainly not adverse to that. It's a good exercise in letting somebody else try the communicating to de-escalate the person. Uh, you know, sometimes just a change in voice helps. And your same steps can be used for employees or patients that become violent? Absolutely. Absolutely. The only difference is with the employees, at the end of the day, if they need the paycheck, they're going to have to comply by our rules. And uh, should we train all of our employees? And if not, who should we train? Great question. Um, I'm an advocate that we train everybody on verbal de-escalation. And the reason I say that is because any one of our employees could have a an adverse interaction, I'll call it, a verbal disagreement or a verbal interaction with a frustrated family member. So knowing how to respond and not make it worse will help out a lot. I think about the hospitals a lot. You know, the family comes in, the family members brought in by ambulance, and what's the first thing we say is, will you go over there and fill out a chart? Well, their attitude is, the heck with the chart, I want to be with my loved one, but we still need to get the chart filled out. So now that poor registration person bears the wrath of this person's bad attitude or, or frustration or whatever you want to say. So I'm a big fan of training all of our staff in verbal de-escalation. Physical de-escalation, not so much. You know, We don't need to necessarily train everybody on, on, on uh, dealing with the physical protection and the physical uh, control techniques, but definitely the caregivers. All right. Well, yeah, in lieu of the time, I'm going to go ahead and, um, and wrap up right now. Uh, please use Steve's contact information on the screen if you have any further questions. If you send us the questions, I'll forward them on to him. Your Paycom CU certificate will be emailed to you automatically. You do not need to request it. Please join us again next week on May 24th at noon Eastern Standard Time for Common Life Safety Code Deficiencies and Strategies for Compliance with Stan Ziptick of Fire and Life Safety. He is a friend of Steve's and I'm sure will be just as entertaining. Uh, you can register for this webinar or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at 1sthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. Thank you again, Steve, and thank you again for joining us. Have a great day. Thank you, Jill. And if a few of you next week on that one, if you would just put a note on there at the end for Stan, a comment that you would much rather hear Steve, it would mean the world to me because he is a dear friend and we spar all the time. Thank you so, so much. <laughs> Have a great day. <laughs> I'll see you later. <laughs>